Hello, friends. My name's Kyle. I surf, I make movies, and I love asking questions. This is my show where I have conversations with athletes from big wave world champions to filmmakers like the art director of Avatar, or in this case, um, the former editor of Surfer Magazine. And right now I am sitting in Honoka'a, Hawaii, doing this introduction from a friend's guest bedroom and it is raining outside. First off, I wanted to say thank you to everyone who's been reaching out to me on Facebook and Instagram with feedback on this podcast and recommendations for new guests. I appreciate it, and I do my best to respond to every single message. And thank you also to everyone who's been going to my website, kyle.surf, and donating to this show. I recently teamed up with two of my surf sponsors, Patagonia Provisions, which is Patagonia's food line, as well as RPM Jump Ropes, which is a fitness company that makes jump ropes that actually work, to do a raffle every month to say, uh, to say thank you to all of the supporters of this show. The minimum amount to be entered into the raffle is $1 a month, and we are doing our first giveaway on March 1st. So head over to my website, kyle.surf, Donate to the show, and you might get a big box of goodies sent to your doorstep this month. All right, my guest today is Steve Hawk. Steve is the former editor of Surfer Magazine from 1990 to 1998, and a contributing editor since 2004. Steve moved on to become the editorial director of Surfline and Swell.com from 1999 to 2001. He then helped start the Tony Hawk Foundation, a charitable group uh, co-founded by Steve's younger brother, Tony. He helped write the surf-themed HBO show, John from Cincinnati, and since 2009 has been the executive editor of Sierra, the Sierra Club's bi-monthly magazine. Hawk has written surf-related freelance articles for the New York Times, the Los Angeles Times, Outside, and Harper's. He is the author of Waves and helped ghostwrite, ghostwrite Tony Hawk's How Did I Get Here? The Ascent of an Unlikely CEO. Steve Hawk won the 2012 Maggie Award for The Cost of Coal, a Sierra Club magazine expose on the coal industry. In this conversation, we dig into a few stories that Steve was most proud to tell as the editor of Surfer Magazine. We also talk about um, his experience navigating relationships with advertisers in the surf world. And we talk a little bit about the coal industry and some big wins in the environmental movement that may have gone unnoticed. I really enjoyed sitting down with this guy. He is honest. He has a hilariously dry sense of humor and is just a joy to be around. So I hope you enjoy this conversation with Steve Hawk. Kyle Cameron here. I'm in Cape Town. I was the only journalist in northern Nigeria. Not an adventure until you get lost in Tijuana. You get caught inside by a giant wave, you feel really alone. I love the adventure of waking up and not knowing what will happen and that being my job. I'm standing at a desert oasis right now. A lot of tourists don't see this part of Bali. Smiles and thumbs up. Thumbs up. I want to hear about Antarctica. 
Antarctica. I want to hear about Antarctica. Really? Yeah. Okay. Um, so, uh, when I was editing Surfer Magazine in the 90s, I became friend with, friends with Doc Renneker, who had an obsession with going to going as far north as he could. Um, so when I was at Surfer, we we ran the f- organized the first surf trip to Alaska with Dave Parmenter and Josh Mulcoy. Um, Bob Barber shot it. Um, and they got they got pretty good waves. But Doc actually was up there like a month ahead of them. Um, and he, that was his first exploration to Alaska. And ever since then, he's gone back to Alaska twice a year, almost uh, every year since then. This was in the early 90s. So he's explored, the, you know, the southeast coast, the Aleutians, up by Kodiak Island. He's also gone north of Norway up to Spitsbergen Island. So... I went with him on one trip to Yakutat in the early 90s, and then we organized a trip on behalf of the magazine to the Aleutians in the mid to late 90s, 96, 97. And that was a trip with Jay Moriarty and Peter Mel, um, Anthony Rufo, Donovan. Uh, and we, we, we found some really good waves, and we got, we got a pretty good article out of it. But I remember on the flight home from that trip, Doc said to me, um, next time we south, and he used south as a verb, like next time we're going south. Because he had just, I think, recently come upon the books about Ernest Shackleton's expedition to Antarctica back in the 1915, 1916. And those tales which that's one of the great uh, adventures of all time where they got stranded, their boat got locked in ice, got crushed. They ended up in these three little skiffs. You had 26 men. They all lived at the end of it. They all got rescued largely because he was such an amazing uh, captain and leader. But there's a famous photo from that expedition because they happened to have with them on it a guy who was kind of the equivalent of the Ansel Adams of Great Britain at the time. Uh, And he kept all of his, he took these amazing photos. And he was one of the ones who was stranded the whole time. So uh, there's a a photo of the rescue boat coming in and the the guys who were getting rescued who've been stranded on this ice floe for 18 months, standing, waving and cheering at this guy coming off the, the rescue boat. It's Shackleton himself who's gone off to find a boat to bring him back. And in the foreground, there's this little wave breaking that's surfable, like what waist-high little wave. And Doc had seen that wave and said to himself, wow, they're surfing Antarctica. We could surf Antarctica. So, and because he's, he's kind of a freak, Doc Renneker, uh, he decided to organize an expedition down there and we figured it out. Do tell. <laughs> so, um, uh, so this was in 2000. I had um, 
just left Surfer Magazine, and I was now working for Surfline.com, Swell.com. And uh, there was a lot of money floating around because it was right before the dot-com, the first big dot-com bubble burst. And uh, we had a bunch of VC money, and they agreed to pay for my trip down there. It was like 10 grand a head to go down to Antarctica. It was ridiculous. But we got this, we, we um, chartered this boat from a guy who's sort of the premier, kind of the, actually the only person who'd ever really sailed a small boat into Antarctica and nosed around all the coves on the, on the peninsula. Um, and uh, um, we met him in Ushuaia, which is the southernmost city in the world at the tip of uh, Tierra del Fuego near the tip and um, he kind of knew what we were looking for so we got on this boat and sailed across the Drake's Passage which was the scariest part of the trip by far knowing that you were sailing across what's largely regarded as the most treacherous um, open ocean passage in the world what kind of a boat was it? It was like a 65-foot steel-hulled um, catch uh, sailboat, but we motored almost the whole time. And how many people were on the boat? Uh, a crew of three and then eight surfers, eight, or eight of us. Um, so it was Doc, me, uh, Chris Malloy, Art Brewer, the photographer, Doc's really good friend, um, Kevin Starr, who's quite the adventurer himself and then uh, a guy named Edwin Salem who's from Argentina and then uh, a few other people um, and uh, we had no idea what we were going to find no one had ever done any ex surf exploration down there we, we figured that there was going to be just a shitload of swell because Antarctica and it's right at the Drake's Passage and you've read all these stories about boats and 50 foot seas and um, but uh, we had an, um, a blessedly placid crossing um, but at any time you're, you know that it could switch and then yeah. all of a sudden you become yeah. a story that's right <laughs> that's right I had, man I had, yeah how fun was that? The word adventure is thrown around so loosely these days, mm -hmm. but that is an adventure. Yeah. Yeah. The word fun didn't come to mind. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's one of those experiences that's fun after the fact. When you look back on it, mm -hmm. you you revel in the, the adventure, right? But yeah. it's not fun in the moment. But then did you, did you find waves? Uh, we, so we were down there for almost a month and we found, we had one day of really good surf really good surf um what kind of waves uh so one of the most interesting surf spots that I, i'm sure the most unusual surf spot i'll ever surf in my life it was um was on this little island called low island which is part of the antarctica peninsula which juts up north out of antarctica just below tierra del fuego and that's the closest place to to land, to land as we know it in in uh, Antarctica, and it was at the mouth of a glacier that 
had, that was in retreat. So the glacier had pushed out seaward, I don't know how many years ago, and then either as part of global warming or something, w- had pulled back maybe a mile from its uh, terminal moraine, as they call it. And and they, they act like bulldozers in that they as they move forward, they kind of scour the, the ground below them. Then they retreat. This thing had left a reef, basically, at, in front of it that was slanted to the incoming swell. So it was, it was like a reef pass created by this glacier. So, um, and the waves were, it felt like, I don't know, like in terms of the, 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 the power and speed of the waves, it was kind of like razor blades at the Hollister Ranch. It was like, it was, it was a good fast wave, but it wasn't, it wasn't like a slab, but it was, it had this facey, it was really surfable. And it, and it was a machine. Every wave was doing the same thing. And the day we were there, it was like head high. Um, and we spotted it from behind. And I remember when we saw it, it was like the first real wave we had seen in two and a half weeks down there. And the few of us who'd surfed waves from boats before real, kind of recognized what we had. And so I jumped, uh, I, we all suited up really fast, and I jumped off the boat first thinking, I'm going to be the first one to ride this wave because I want to name it. That's like the thing. <laughs> and, and I got about I got about halfway there, and fucking Chris Malloy, who is in much better shape than me, uh, just powers past me <laughs> to be the first one in the lineup. <laughs> and he got the first wave. Uh, Pissed me off. And, this, and, and, and Chris... I don't even think I don't even think about how many waves Chris Malloy has ridden in his life that he's been the first one to ride. He's gotten the name. Like this was my shot. This was your shot. <laughs> uh, what do you name it? Chris, uh, just Low Chris, Island. Chris's wave. Low, low, yeah, something like that. Yeah. Oh, that's great. Um, yeah. Was, how cold is the water? So in Antarctica, the water is there's a there's a big circle around Antarctica where once you go past it, all the water is 33 degrees. It's just one degree above freezing. But the air was in the 40s, so I mean it was as cold as, as I've ever been in. But guys on the East Coast, you know, they're surfing in 34, 35 degree water when it's 20 below. Yeah. So it wasn't that. Yeah. You know, the, we we didn't have snot sickles. You know. Um. And are is there ice in the water as well? Yeah. So that was the crazy part. So this is so that the. Um, this reef, uh, shoreward of the reef, was this giant lagoon that was about, I don't know, it was hard to tell, third of a mile, quarter mile, half mile, from this glacier face that was 400 feet high. Um, so you have this little reef with a few exposed rocks, and then shoreward of it, this big, deep lagoon that goes up to this glacier face. And every 20 minutes or so, these 10-story buildings would calve off of the glacier face and hit the water and send waves out, like backwash waves, out the other way. And the first time it happened, it freaked us all out. And then we realized that the, um, those waves were coming across this deep water lagoon, which was filled with ice and then breaking on this reef but going the other way and like good like it would create a wedge almost 
Uh, or, the, or it would be coming off the opposite way. It would come the opposite way, but, but hitting the same reef, just going, it was a left. Basically, we were surfing the right, and this was the left. And, and it, was, it would kind of break, like surfable. So uh, like the second or third time it happened, I remember Malloy paddled as hard as he could towards shore because he thought, I'm going to catch one of those. And he spun around, and the thing hit the reef and broke, and then it backed off right before it got to him. So he, he didn't get to actually surf a glacier wave. That would have been pretty cool. But, but because the, those things were sending so much ice into this lagoon and the tide was coming out, that there was a, at the end of the reef, there was like a channel and the ice was pouring out, and then it would kind of run up the reef. So as you were surfing, your fins would be hitting these little blocks of ice. Um, and you'd hear them like ping, 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 ping. Um, and sometimes it would be like a, a crunch. Like clunk. Yeah, like a clunk. And, and kind of gnarly if you had to duck dive. Oh, yeah. Um, so there was that, and then there were, there were penguins in the water that were like, you know, kind of doing this dolphin thing around us. And then there were these these waves coming off the glacier. It, it was it was like being on LSD. It was like it was like nothing that I've ever I remember at one point Doc put his hands up in the air like This is not real. Like this. there's just too much sensory input going on here right now. Wow. Oh man. Yeah. Some people surf in kelp and there are seals jumping and some people surf in ice and there are glaciers falling, there are penguins swimming. What yeah. a life experience. Yeah, it was. That really was. Although, you know, I, I will confess that I've gotten a shit ton of mileage out of that one story <laughs> over the years. You know, that was like squeezed yeah, it forever. I, I milked it. Um, how do you write about a story like that? What's your process on the trip to make sure that you're going to be able to come back with a good story? So I was actually blogging off of that story. We had a satellite phone, and I, uh, if I had it to do over, because so I, I would come back and I would write like a little journal every day about it. So every time I wrote about each day, I tried to have some sort of little story to the day, but I wasn't thinking in terms of a single long-term narrative arc over the course of the trip because I was just dumping um, my my words to get them to get them out because. A lot of people were following it kind of live, as live as you could be. Um, so my process for that was sort of trying to come up with a little story for each day, which would have been much different than my process if I had been taking notes and then at the end of it said, I'm going to write a 4,000-word piece about the trip to Antarctica. Yeah, so, yeah, so what does a, a daily journal look like? Because I'm really curious in this process of the traveling writer mm -hmm. because so often we forget those little um, descriptive adjectives that uh, that kind of make a story come alive right and at, by the end of it we're like oh man it was a really fun trip we did this we did that but it's already been forgotten so right. how do you make sure that you grab that while it's fresh in your mind like what and I know that you said journaling but what does that actually look like yeah, that's a that's that's a that's a great question, because when I was editing Surfer back in the '90s, I remember I talked to some class once at a junior college with people who were interested in travel writing, and 
a couple of them actually wanted to write for a surfer, and they were saying, so I, I, I've got this trip planned. I want to go to the Bahamas and write about the surf there. And, you know, what should I do? And uh, the biggest piece of advice I could give was um, if, if you're going as a journalist, go as a journalist first and as a surfer second. So take notes because just as you said, very smart, you forget shit. It just, it's, it's inevitable. And if you don't capture it, if you don't write it down, especially like a good quote. It's gone. You, it's gone. Gone, gone. forever. And I, so I was a newspaper reporter for 10 years before I worked at Surfer. And um, I learned how to take notes really well. So you've got to figure out some kind of form of shorthand so that when you're talking to people and, and get them used to the fact that you're actually taking notes. If you can record, that's always best because if you record and take notes, then the recording just becomes a backup in case you didn't catch something. But also if you turn, if you turn a recorder on, then you're free to just talk to someone rather than slow them down. Wait, wait, I didn't get that. I need to catch that. Um, so yeah, just get a hundred times more material than you're actually going to use. And then you can just cherry pick the stuff out of that for sure. But my, my advice I remember in this class was just don't think of this as, oh, great, server's paying for my trip. And then I'll, when I get back, I'll figure something else to write. In the moment, realize that you're a camera and that you need to get good stuff so you can tell a good story. You owe that to the reader. Um, otherwise you're just being lazy and kind of an asshole, frankly. Right. Well, within the surfing world, that line is blurred for a lot of people uh, because most people enter the surf industry because they love to surf. And maybe they weren't good enough to be pro surfers, right? And you end up on a lot of these trips where you're kind of like, well, am I working or am I surfing? And there, it's like this big, muddy industry of a lot of people who are kind of just trying to continue to have a good time um, and not really putting in the same level of work as you see in other industries. I've, right. I've found because it is just so fucking cool to be a surfer and be able to go on a lot of these trips. Right. Um, so what is it... Um, like what piece of advice would you have given yourself when you were young starting out in the surf industry? Right. If the 60-year-old me could talk to the 35-year-old me, um, I would say uh, take it more seriously um, and realize that uh, there are a lot of really amazing stories to be told in the surf world. Um like true stories that transcend surfing that anyone would be interested in uh, and find those. Work a lot harder at finding those rather than just sort of take what's coming to you. Um, you know, when I was editing Surfer, I, I would send people out on stories on trips. You know, a lot of times because some one of the big surfboard companies was going to the Tuamotus. Quicksilver team was going to the Tuamotus. And we knew we were going to get great photos because they had Ted Grambo on the trip. And But I couldn't afford to send a writer, so I figured, well, I'll just talk to 
some surfer after the fact, and we'll interview him, and we'll, fit, we'll you know, it'll be fun, but we won't really get a story. Like it, it's not, there's no, there's nothing, there's no real heart to it. It's just sort of fun and entertaining, and um, and the. The, the kind of the older I got, the kind of the more angry, the angrier I got about the fact that people, including myself, just were not really looking for the real stories. Um, and they're out there. They're out there. I mean, y- even people who you don't think have stories, if you really dig deep, they've something, there's something they want to talk about. Yeah. If someone's not a good interview, it means that you weren't a good interviewer. For the most part, I think that's for the most part. Yeah, I've found some, that. some people just, you know, anybody who ends up in the top ten at the age of seventeen probably doesn't have that great a story to tell yet. But maybe, you know, maybe. right. Um. So, how was it that you came to be the editor at Surfer? What was that process like? You said you were working in a newspaper, then you got in with Surfer. Mm-hmm. Um. And you went right to the top at Surfer when you started working there. Mm-hmm. Tell me about that. Uh, so I wasn't. I graduated from college in the seventies. I went into newspaper work shortly thereafter, and uh, kind of made my way up from a small weekly paper where I was making like one hundred and fifty bucks a week, up to a kind of legitimate metropolitan daily called the Orange County Register, uh, which was I think the third biggest paper in California at the time. It was a and, you know, at that point, at that time in the journalism world, the trajectory was pretty clear for anybody who wanted to make a living at it, which was, you know, you work at a small paper, you get good clips, you get hired at a bigger paper. And so from the register, it was, it was you know, the next step probably was, it would have been the LA Times or a paper like that. Um, but I also was, every paper I worked at, I was sort of the token surfer. So I was writing all, if there was a surf story, I was writing those. And then when I went to the Orange County Register, I started freelancing for uh, surfer and surfing magazines, which were both based in Orange County. So my name was sort of out there. And then Matt Warshaw, who had been the editor of Surfer Magazine, who these days is widely acknowledged, rightfully, as the, you know, the, the number one historian of surfing, encyclopedia surfing, history of surfing, good friend of mine, incredible writer. I think largely underrated, um, like n- just not as well known as he should be. Uh, so anyway, he was the editor. My name got th- got thrown into the hat as the people they wanted to interview. I went in for an interview. He kind of liked me. I met Pesman. Pesman kind of liked me. And then they offered me the job. That was in 1990. Wow. So I became the editor, and and I just kind of leapfrogged over a couple of the guys who were on staff there who. I think largely because I had real journalism experience. Like I, you know, I kind of knew all about the rules and ethics and how to interview and stuff like that. Right. Um, and then what was your evolution at Surfer? What were some of the biggest lessons that you learned there? Because that is a whole nother world because kind of going back to the idea of the muddy waters of being a surf journalist or a surfer, a lot of times you can get the best stories by just being the guy who's hanging out there and, yeah. and being comfortable in those those scenes. You were talking earlier before we started recording about your friendship with Brock Little mm-hmm. and how that was one of the first real pro surfers who you became genuine friends with. Yeah. Yeah, so, you know, it was really different than newspapers. So at newspapers, there was this very 
high, thick wall between editorial and advertising. I remember one time I was at this, I was at the Orange County Register. I wrote a story that pissed off an advertiser, and the advertiser called me to complain, and I like panicked. I like, I'm not allowed to talk to you. I'm sorry, I can't talk to you. This, this is violating every ethical principle. Call your ad rep. I don't know what. Call my editor. I don't know, but I can't talk to you. And then you know, my first week at Surfer. The publisher took me out and introduced me to the CEOs of Quicksilver and Billabong and Reef and like that. You just make the rounds. Here's your new guy. And they all got to tell me what they th- what I should do with the magazine. And, uh, <laughs> you know, here's how you should be covering the shit. And what does a conversation like that sound like? Oh, okay. Well, it depends on the person, right? But, you know, most of them were, were real gentlemen about it. You know, they, a couple of those CEOs, I, I really, really admired. Um, a lot of them, Bob Hurley. Such a such a good guy, such a gentleman. Just would never try to tell me what to write. Uh, Bob McKnight, I love Bob McKnight, the CEO of Quicksilver at the time. Um, also, just you know, low key. A couple of guys were dicks. I probably shouldn't name them. Um, and kind of stayed that way through my whole tenure there. What is uh, what does that look like? You don't need to name these guys, but I do think that that relationship between advertiser. And magazine mm-hmm. is really interesting, and a lot of people who are reading magazines don't get to um, hear what those conversations are like. Right. So they're not overt. It's not like you know, if you don't cover our guy, I'm going to pull our ad. Um, although I did have, I did have a couple of things where I pissed somebody off, and they threatened to pull know like a hundred thousand dollars worth of ads for the year and was told to make it right and i said i don't think so i wish i didn't do anything wrong and that caused a stir um and uh uh so it's it it's it's more like there's just this subtle tone in the conversation where they want you to know that they have leverage and you know, you better not. So is it kind of like, 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 hey man, like, Mick Fanning's been doing really well recently. Like, if you've seen him, like, he's been killing it. Like, dude, it'd be epic as if you guys did a trip out to the Bahamas together. Yeah. Like in the summertime, we have this new board short that is just like, it's amazing. I'll send you a pair. And you get Mick and a couple other the Rip guys out there. Like, yeah. that would just be a great story, I think. Sure. Right? So. Is it kind of a little well, kind of like that? So that that, but without the board short, right? Yeah, that, that's a little. That's a little too overt. Yeah, yeah, yeah. right. But more yeah, like you know, here's my. You should. You, we're going to this place. You should cover it. And, yeah. Um, and the so the guys, if if that's the first conversation out of a guy's mouth when you first meet him, then you know that that's all. They just see you as a tool, and um, and then you, all that does is make you less inclined to want to work with them. Really. Right. I mean, it's just it, that that doesn't work. Right. It's kind of a mistake. Um, I will. Ha- I do have one funny story about that. Um, so there was this at the time, and the there was this trend among wax companies for some reason to kind of go after sex wax. So they all these wax companies came out with these double entendre n- names. I don't know if you remember this period. No. So there was Mrs. Palmer's wax for palm, like whacking off, and there was. Uh, um, like big there was one that was a big rooster so it was it, had, it was like a cock you know uh, and there was one company called Poontang's Poontang's Wax 
<laughs> um, out of Florida. And this is why as surfers, we can't have nice things and ascend to the next level. Right? <laughs> Thank God, though, so, right? But, but these guys, somehow they, they scraped together enough money to advertise in the magazine. But it was they could only do an, uh, like a, a one-third page advertisement. They couldn't buy a whole page, which means that we had to fill the rest of that page with editorial of some sort. And this was at a time when... Uh, we had a, a recurring column called this Ask the Surf Docs, which was written by Mark Renneker, who I went to Antarctica with and Alaska with. He, he's a he's a, an MD and really does a great job in helping people. So there's a lot of stuff to write for the surf docs to write about. So I actually said to Doc at one point, you know, okay, we've written about surfer's ear, we've written about sun damage, uh, pterygiums, all the stuff. Our audience is 19. Let's do a thing on just sex ed. So he wrote a, just a general thing on, look, you guys, here's what you need to know about. This was in, you know, this in the 90s, kind of before, uh, certainly before online porn. And um, so the, the... This is when the reef ads were still the main material of young, young children. <laughs> yes. Um, so we run this, uh, we run this article that... Uh, Doc wrote, and the headline on it was, um, uh, love may come and go, but herpes lasts forever. Like, you know, just kind of be careful, boys. And it, so this was the, this was two thirds of the page, and the other third of the page was this Poontang ad. And at this point, they're selling t-shirts, it's not just wax, and the t-shirts, of course, are like, you know, boobs <laughs> yes. are hanging out of their shirts. And, and I get a call from from the from the owner of Poontang who says you know why did you do that i know you hate us you hate our company and so you put this this ad up on purpose and I, and I said to him like, legitimately what, like, what, like let, let's talk about what's the word association game with Poontang wax like herpes <laughs> <laughs> so but but the thing is so when i when i would get what's called the the map of the of the book every month the, the, which shows us where we're going to put every story I would just see that that this page has an ad on it, but they wouldn't tell me what who whose ad it was. It was just ad here and then copy here, editorial here. So I didn't know it was a Poontang ad. It was like it was legitimate, it was just a mistake on my part. I probably would have rethought it, although maybe not. Um, <laughs> Looking back, <laughs> it's all for a good story. So, but the guy says, the guy says, uh, you know. Oh, look, we're trying to get away from the whole sex angle of this thing. And I said, dude, your company is called Poontang. What are you talking about? You're never going to get away This is your ethos, bro. <laughs> this, is, this is your core rash. This is your reason for being. Oh, that's so funny. That is so funny. Um, so how did, you, how did you learn to navigate that world? Um, because I do think that this is the, the conversation of advertising and journalism is more relevant than ever mm -hmm. um, because what, we, what we're talking about a lot of times um, with articles is native advertising, right? Where you right. there's just, they happen to be wearing the board short um, and I am involved with this um, for, within video too. It's gotten a lot smarter and smarter as, it, as it's gotten um, as the times have progressed where now there'll be uh, short docs, right? That will be sponsored by a, a company. And it's really difficult for the viewer to discern 
a real story from advertising. And I think that that has been one of the main reasons that we we now live in this time where there's this fake news craze, right? Where it's like, that's that's not real, that's fake news. Because it's really hard for for the consumer, for people who want to read, to, to discern real from fake. Um, how did you learn to navigate that world um, in an ethical way? And I, and I guess that it is less relevant to, to surf mags because people want to pick up a surf mag and just relax and yeah. read, it, read a good story. And it's not like you're yeah. CNN doing it and, and there just happens sure. to be a, a logo in it. People but, are a lot more forgiving. In that yeah, world. people are much more forgi- forgiving in surfing. Um, but, you've, but you've also worked outside of the surf industry. So I am interested sure. to hear your, um, your view on, on it uh, as an overall concept. Basically, you sell your soul to the devil, and then you live with that. No. No. <laughs> I'm like, really? Well. <laughs> no. um, uh, so there, inevitably, with with a surf magazine, you know, it's not the New York Times, so we're not going to do an investigative article on some kind of insider stock trading at Quicksilver, say, even though our audience might be interested in that. Probably not interested in that. You know, we're there to make people excited about surfing, make them uh, kind of reinforce the notion that it's that it's cool to be a surfer, um, and that it's exciting and inspiring. Um, and to celebrate it right um so but within that you know you can tell good stories and you can tell stories that have tragedy in them and that have darkness and uh you know they're real um but uh that said you know there are always going to be influences from advertisers especially especially now because you know they're they're in there are so much, so many fewer advertisers, and circulation is falling, and advertising revenue is down, and people are much hungrier to chase the, to chase the dollar. It's getting harder and harder. Um, you know, so, so yeah, native advertising is an interesting thing because on the one hand, yeah, it's it's a, it's prostitution. You know, where you're you're telling a story, but you're making sure the logos are there. Um, you know, you're making sh- you're only going to write about people who are sponsored by this one company, um, and it's not real journalism by any means. At the same time, there's some pretty cool stuff happening there. You know, Patagonia is doing fantastic stuff with some of their storytelling. My favorite surf movie of the past ten years is Chris Malloy's piece on. Ramon Navarro called the Fisherman's Son, which is a real story, told by a by a by a really in, talented storyteller. Um, you know that story. Uh, you've seen it. Oh yeah, I love it. The, you know the the stuff he does with um, by kind of recreating the uh, the reenacting the young Navarro going into the water, and then the stuff with his father, with the grandmother where she talks about the fish they used to eat and she's got, she's got that beautiful craggy face and you just feel like you just fall in love with the guy. Then his story about going to the North Shore and 
making empanadas and you know making a little brick oven and selling those empanadas maybe killing some chickens to make the empanadas and then you know uh, Cole Christensen taking him out to Waimea and he earns his way into the lineup out there gets invited into the Eddy catches the wave of the year that and then the way that Chris crafted that by um, the moment when he spins on that wave and goes and he has this m- montage of flashbacks where you see him as a, the young boy and the grandmother and the and you, and you realize all the shit he went through to get to that moment that's that's like that's real craftsmanship that was some real filmmaking there and those stories are there's a lot of those stories in the surf world there's just no one's bothering to tell that way and and yet that's a you know, so there's also embedded in that movie this environmental message about all the good work he's done to stop the the pulp mills down there and the dams and you know he's kind of become the voice of environmentalism for that part of Chile which is unbelievable um, so it's it's actually kind of part propaganda but it doesn't smell like propaganda you know there's like a Trojan horse there right well you care about Ramon um, because he is a good guy I'm friends with him and he is genuinely a good guy but the movie makes you care about him and then as a result, you care about his initiatives. That's right. And I think that a big um, mistake that a lot of people do when they're writing about environmental issues or telling stories about environmental issues is they just start with the issue. And then as a result, they say, ah, people don't care about environmental issues. That's right. We, we, we can't write about environmental issues because people don't, people don't care about them. But if you, if you start with the person, right? right? then you can get the audience to care about pretty much anything. Um, but do you think... Um, you can get that if you need to. Yeah. Go for it. Sorry about that. Let's go. Ask that question again. Um, what advice would you give to young journalists to look for deeper stories? What do you mean by deeper stories? Well, you just... you, you when we We just stopped recording for a second, and you said that all great stories come from life and death. What do you mean by that? Um, well, you know, the, the best stories, they have to do with the, the peak moments in life and the peak moments in life invariably have to do with um, life and death and relationships. And, and all stories are human stories. I mean, that's why all good surf stories, uh, all the good stuff happens on land you know except for in the rarest case of somebody tackling a, an 80 foot wave you know, on his own um, but uh, you know that's that's just the nature of storytelling right but is it I, that was just an interesting thing that you said it just stuck with me that that a lot of the great stories invariably involve death Okay, so here's a story. Yeah. Um, uh, so Kelly Slater, I actually think, is uh, a, a much more soulful person than a lot of people realize. And I, I don't know him that well, but I've had some dealings with him, and I think he's he uh, he thinks. Th- things through in really crucial moments like that so it, it, when Brock Little died 
um, he gave a, a he told a story at Brock's funeral, um, which was that he remembers one of it, when, in one of Kelly's early days on the North Shore, when all of the the kind of the the young guns Kelly, Dorian, Machado, all, all that crew were all kind of staying at the Hill House and the the Benji Weatherly House and um and Brock took Kelly out to a giant day. I don't remember if it was Haleiwa or Sunset or Waimea, but it was like Kelly was way out of his comfort zone because he was young. And, and as they're paddling out, Brock says, hey, look, you know, this is the real deal. It's scary out here. If you're scared, don't worry about it. Um, just sit in the channel and watch. And then, you know, next time you'll you'll figure it out. But and so that's what happened. Kelly went out there. It was huge. He was scared. He didn't get any waves. He paddled in. And uh, when they got home, they walked in the door. And first thing Brock says is, Slater totally pussed out. <laughs> <laughs> Which, so to me, that, 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 that's, that's Brock. Yeah. Makes Brock look like kind of a dick. But Brock was kind of a dick. What about that stuff? And he told that at his funeral. At you know, at a time when people are kind of grieving Brock, but you you want to see both sides of the guy. Yeah, you want the reality. You want the reality. Who so, the person actually was, yeah. and yeah. Um, now that makes sense. Where have you found your best surf stories? Um. Uh. So. With people who have who have interesting lives, I, I think maybe the my favorite story I wrote when I was at Surfer. Uh, one was about my father's death. I, I, I wrote a uh, column about that, um, and how when I was a kid, when I was like ten, twelve years old. I was at school one day. I was always kind of a worry wart of a kid and I looked up and my dad was in the in the door of the classroom and uh, pulled me out and I was really scared like something had happened and and he said uh, um, there's a yellowtail run happening and we're going fishing and he took me out of school to go fishing and I um, I told this story at my dad's funeral um, and because at the time when, when my dad died my my oldest son was three years old and I just made a vow to myself that someday I was going to do the same thing for him that he'd look up and see his dad in the doorway of the school and say you know we're going surfing turned out my son never became a surfer so I didn't get to do that <laughs> but I, I did <laughs> I did uh, I did it when he was in high school and uh, it freaked him out and I took him to the premiere of the Jackass 2 movie <laughs> which had just come out <laughs> and, and the I, greatest film of all time arguably right <laughs> with the depends on what age you are I guess with the snake <laughs> yeah one of the most influential films in my young <laughs> life that's for sure definitely so stole my, a number of shopping carts as a result <laughs> right and my brother was in that movie too so it was that was part of it but but so he had no idea why he, but he was so stoked, and and he told me like a couple of weeks later that uh, 
What, what was his, he doing? His friends. So he was like in 10th grade. His friends nominated me as like the, the I won the cool dad of the year award. For yes. pull, pulling him out of school to go see the Jackass movie. Yeah. Oh, that's great. So so that's that's a story where you know, my dad kind of paying that stuff forward, which, which I hope my son will do someday yeah. for his son. Would you say that in all of your years of writing, you've become better and better at uh, navigating those defining qualities in people when you see them, when you meet them? You, I mean, you're, you're a great st- storyteller, obviously, but you, you also have pointed out these characteristics in people mm-hmm. who you've mentioned so far. Would you say that that was a cultivated ability um, from writing? Or are you even aware of it? I mean, you, oh, you've talked really about. I mean, you've talked about Chris Malloy, and you've right. you've named a few defining characteristics about him. Right. Then Brock, right. and then Kelly. Yeah, that's a really good question. I, I, so that's a good question. I don't know if that's something that people just have, or or you develop over time. I mean, I, I like to think that um, that I've always been drawn toward good people who are you know, kind of soulful in, not not in the hippie way, but just in, the, in the, the way that they walk through the world and are kind and uh, have generous spirits, um, but also can, you know, are kind of wry and can be cynical without being ugly. Um, and uh, so that's a good question. I don't know if that's a learned ability or an innate ability. I, I can't answer that. Right. Um, and when you shifted to, I'm going to move outside of surfing now, to mm-hmm. when you started writing for Sierra. And, Sierra. Okay, before we do that, sure. There's one more. There's one thing I wanted to talk about. So yeah. the other story I wrote for Surfer that I was that I was proud of that I that I I've gone back to recently and and I, I didn't execute it that well, but one of my favorite stories was the story of the Malloy family. So, um, I don't know if you know, but so the, the Malloy brothers are about, I think, six years apart total, four, six years apart. But they have a younger sister named Mary who was born with severe disabilities, um, blind, can't talk, can't walk, just a multiple array of, and, uh, I wrote a story about that about about how that tragedy ultimately kind of turned into this redemptive thing that brought their family closer and it's one of the reasons why those guys are all so amazing those those brothers are just just such good guys and and their parents are even even more heroic um because the mother decided not to put the mary into a home and she just devoted her life to this girl for like 16 years, um, and and those and they were all willing to talk about it in depth with me about how hard that was, but also how how uniting it was for them, you know. Um, and so those are the kinds of stories. It has nothing to do with surfing. Yeah. Right. But that's the story. What was it like interviewing them about that? Oh, they were great. Yeah, they they were they were all really candid. Even even the dad. Yeah. Um, you know, some people not so much. It's just kind of uh, how willing people are to talk about stuff like that. Dan and Keith were too young to really remember the bad part, but Chris told me some amazing stuff about like his dad just on the 
curb outside the hospital the day that Mary was born with his head in his hands, like, because his dad had always taken care of everything, and this was the one thing he couldn't fix, didn't know what to do. Wow. And then rallied. Whew, this, the stories that you've been a part of, man. Well, that, yeah, I, that was just a story I, I, I helped to tell. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and you've always, I, I mean, so moving from there, you, to Sierra Magazine, you were also telling some heavy stories there as well. I mean, that was in a, a completely different world, but still very, um, very much not all rainbows and butterflies. For sure. Yeah. Heavier. Heavier. In many ways. Heavier yeah. in many ways. Tell me about that. Um, so Sierra Magazine is the magazine of the Sierra Club, which is the oldest environmental group in the world. Started in the late 1800s by John Muir, who you can thank for all of our national park system. Um, but it started out as a hiking club and uh, he would take people out on these hikes and then he increasingly realized that all these beautiful places, the most beautiful places in America, were threatened by development and loggers. And so realized um, that the best way to get people to want to protect natural places is to put them out there so that they fall in love with them and then they'll be much more viscerally inclined to... Stewards for life. Stewards for life, yeah. I mean, that's Truly, that's why I'm an environmentalist, because I'm a surfer. Yeah. You know, my best, the, the most transcendent moments of my life have happened in the water, except for, you know, maybe the birth of my children, <laughs> but <laughs> I don't want to get busted for that. Right. <laughs> uh, that's funny. So, that's funny because, you know, my, my, so my brother is Tony Hawk, the skateboarder, and when he, he made this maneuver, the 900 back in the 90s, and that was the big moment of his life. And he was so stoked, and he got on the mic, and he said, in front of, on live television, and in front of, you know, s- several thousand people, this is the best moment <laughs> of my life, <laughs> with, with, like, his kid in his heart. Oh, busted. <laughs> busted. <laughs> yeah, he had to kind of pull back on that one. So I'm not going to say that was the best. But, you know, so surfing, you know, when you're out in the water, I'm going to get a little maudlin here, but there's... You know, I've been surfing for forty plus years. I'm, 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 I'm a geezer, and I still get out of the water just so stoked. And I think it's partly because it it hits you at every level. You know, nothing stimulates every sense in the way this. You you smell it, you taste it, you hear it, you feel it. Um, when you know a duck dive, a duck dive alone, especially if you can open your eyes underwater. That 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 stimulates you on on literally all every level on all five senses, and then on, you add it. Yeah, you add into that the fact that you're going fast. It's a little bit dangerous. You're 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 performing. It's a little bit like dance, you know. You and, and then you've got the endorphins on top of that. And you're telling me earlier that you uh, you think that right now is the best part of your surfing or I don't know if you said exactly best but like the most important time for you as a surfer in your life well, is uh, now like, like, like surfing is as big a part of my life now as it's ever been yeah, yeah. and I, 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 frankly I'm a little embarrassed by that like I get out of the water and I turn into Jeff Spigoli 
dude, fuck, man. Did you see that wave? You, the, we, I, 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 I can't even talk. Um, but like literally, I think my vocabulary falls by about 45% when I get out of, yeah. out of a good session. I love it. Oh, my girlfriend makes fun of me all the time for that. I'll come back from a good day of uh, surfing and it just turns to, uh, to uh, full, uh, full surf <laughs> turkey talk. Barrels and... Dude, you know what, man? Who cares? At the end, of, like I, I used to be a big one. Like I work on the way that I speak, and I um, try and improve. And I it always used to really annoy me the way that surfers speak. But now it doesn't nearly as much. It's like you know what? That's that's our little thing. Like let's keep it as our little thing. And if we're the only ones who know how to understand each other, whatever. Fuck that shit. Like, yeah. Fuck yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> And you can click in and you can click out, but, and, and, you know, maybe you can click out and that's, that's the best, but, uh, that's cool, man. You've, you've maintained your love for quite some time. Yeah. It, it's, it's waxed and waned, you know, yeah. but, uh, but yeah, for some reason right now, um, it feels very important to me. That's great. Um, so you wanted, you had mentioned Sierra. Yeah. I mean, ultimately I'm, I, I want to know about Cole. Really, that's that's one thing because we're we were uh, speaking the first time I met you. We were talking about coal power plants, and that, that was a huge theme for your life. Well, it was, or it, I mean, I don't know if theme for your life, but no. theme at Sierra Magazine. Sure, I want to know more about that. Yeah, so so Sierra Magazine is the magazine of the Sierra Club. It goes yep. out to a bunch of people to their five hundred thousand members. Was I think there's our, our audited circulation was like six hundred twenty thousand, which is six times what I what I ever had a surfer magazine. Um and but they're all true believers. They're environmentalists. Um and so you're, pre- you're preaching to the choir, so to speak, because you're sending it to members. Precisely. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um so at, at the same time um you know you can you can there are a lot of really good stories in the in the in that world as well. Actually better stories in some ways. Um, because environmental damage is causing so much human grief all around the world. It's pretty easy to find stories that will tug at the human heart. Um, but coal, one of, the, one of the untold success stories in the environmental world is uh, how the Sierra Club almost single-handedly uh, stopped the creation of I think 150 coal-fired power plants around the country. When when George Bush II left office, that was his plan to basically addict the country to coal-fired power plants, which is the number one cause of global warming. They they emit the most CO2. Are they the number one cause? Yes. Over over animal agriculture as well. Yes, by far. Wow. By far. So uh, so the Sierra Club, um, because India, China. You know, the, the, they're, I mean, it, it could be argued, it has been argued, and it's, it's a good point that coal-fired power plants have electrified a lot of third world countries and, and lifted a lot of people out of darkness, and, and that's right. Um, but especially here in the United States, where it's um, actually as cheap or cheaper to use renewables, there's no excuse for it. Right. Not just because of the CO2, but because of, of, of how much you fuck up the land to get coal. Yeah. And then we export a lot of our coal to China. 
mm-hmm. right? Because we don't have that same demand for it here, right. but a lot of those those right. other countries do. Right. That's why the fight over those the rail lines, Appalachia, and those. Well, the rail lines in the Pacific Northwest, where they're trying to take the coal out of, um, out of Wyoming, and the, the Powder River Basin, and, and export it through. Uh, the, the Seattle area; th- those fights are really critical because if they can, if they can, they can squeeze off that, then those guys have no market, and there's no reason to 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 do that mining. But anyway, so the Sierra Club systematically went and shut down through really localized fights uh, the licensing of all, almost all of these coal-fired power plants, so that I think only two or three have come online since Bush left office. And on the strength of that success, they got this huge donation from Michael Bloomberg, the former mayor of New York, who's a very liberal guy, who's uh, to the tune of $50 million to go out and shut down the existing fleet of coal-fired power plants. And they've had a lot of success with that as well. Um, so uh, the... It, and I think like a that's that's crazy. I mean, most people don't know about that. No, I, I knew about it, a, a kind of whiffs of it from being mm-hmm. in the environmental world, but I didn't know that it was this year a club single handedly that a- made that. almost. I mean, I, yeah, I'm sure. But let, let, take me into how it actually happened from this real from this very localized effort. So I'm not entirely sure. I just know that they 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 did a lot of uh, fights over kind of the individual plans to license these plants. And I know that, that with a lot of the existing plants, they went in and they, sh- they showed them, hey, the EPA only allows you to emit this much. You're emitting that much. You're, you're emitting X more than that. So if you want to stay in business, you're going to have to put in these cleaners and that's going to cost you this amount. And they realized that it was just going to cost too much. So they, there's plans to shut down these plants left and right. But the, the, the bottom line number that I always went back to was that um, by the time I left Sierra Magazine in 2014, um, our CO2 emissions in the United States were back to like 1995 levels, almost largely on the strength of shutting down these coal-fired power plants. Yeah, those are big wins. Those are big wins. Those are big wins. Um, and uh, I'm really interested in this, too, because I've, I've covered a lot of issues, um, and one of the central themes of it is this relocalization and it's people in small communities who are kind of like bee stings um, that will ultimately kill um, a polluter or or kill a, a bad idea. It rarely comes from this big centralized effort. Um, what were some of the main tools that you saw people do do well there with that? Uh, to, I mean, it's... I'm, yeah, so I, I so that, that's that's a good question, yeah. and I wish I knew much more about that. Yeah, but I felt like my role as the editor of the magazine was actually to go out and tell stories about uh, the damage that was still being done. Yeah, um, and 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 less about the victories, but they, a lot of them were individual court cases, right? EPA hearings, you know, uh, public utility commission hearings, all these these little. Uh, little judi- judicial um, yeah, municipalities. cases. Yeah, that's that's so yeah, fascinating. That, that's to that's me. often where the real work gets. It done. really is, man. I, that, it always comes back to that. Have you seen? Um, have you seen the documentary Hot Coffee? By no. chance, it's all about. Um, so it's all about. It, it's it's separate but similar. It's about tort reform and it's about 
um, basically the um, laws that were put in place to put caps on how much you as a citizen can sue a corporation if they harm you. Um, and the reason it's called hot coffee is because it goes back to the woman who sued McDonald's for a million bucks. Right. Um, if you look at, if you see the documentary, you realize that it was actually huge completely justified she had horrible burns all over her body she just wanted mcdonald's to pay for her medical bills um it had been there have been a ton of complaints about their coffee um and then they twisted it into this whole thing of like woman wants to still sue mcdonald's for millions right. of bucks and they implemented tort reform as a result sim same same but kind of different from what we were talking about but Interesting. That, but to your point that a lot of the work gets done in those um kind of just boring work seemingly really boring that's work, right right like the the more boring the more nefarious that's a lot right. of times hill by hill town by town yeah crazy what, um, were, what were the biggest um things that you learned working at sierra magazine that's a horrible question no that's that i mean it's just way too big <laughs> <laughs> so i I, know, I i gotta be honest i'm uh I'm kind of nervous asking you questions, being that you are a professional question asker. Sometimes I'm like, shit, all right, damn, that was too yeah. long of a question. But all right, okay. let's just keep it going. So that was kind of a stupid question. You want to re-ask it? No, I'm kidding. Um, so, uh, <laughs> well, you actually, you, you responded by being like, well, oh, that's actually really interesting. <laughs> <laughs> the best, the best answer ever. Um, I mean, you know, it's it's hard not to go back to David Brower's famous quote. By the way, someone in this room won a David Brower Award, I believe. You want to talk about that? No. Nah. Tell us. Nah. Yeah, please, tell us. That was the, the highlight of my, uh, the, the peak of my <clears throat> fame and fortune. The, so the young age of 21. It. Explain it. I, I won the David Brower Youth Award um, when I was 21. Uh for doing a film and a campaign on a proposed coal power plant uh, that was going in on a beach in Chile. And I documented that Bank of America was um, underwriting the project. And I did a story on how banks ultimately give coal companies and pretty much everyone um, the means to build what they want to build and do what they want to do, whether you're a home owner and, or a business owner and you want to make that happen, the bank's making it happen for you. Um, and and I, as I, I do recall that your film and your efforts resulted in how much money being pulled out of Bank America? We got $360 million of lending power being moved out of B of A um, and into local banks and credit unions. Um, How'd that make you feel? Made me feel like a real, real winner. <laughs> I don't know it. You know, I, I, um, I think that more than I mean, the, when we say that number, right? We say that that seems like a real big number, but for a firm like Bank of America, that's ultimately like a decibel they're rounding up or rounding down mm -hmm. but i do think that the concept of moving upstream with our activism and looking at those sources whether it is in the courtrooms or whether it is in the bank accounts can have leveraged impact and i do think that a lot of people really care about um, the world they want to make a big difference but they don't necessarily have the strategic tools to do that um, and when you follow the money, you tend to get to the real 
um, sources. That's that's a great quote. I'm going to steal that. Um, follow the money. Follow the money. So David Brower, the man for whom that award that you won was named, was the executive director of the Sierra Club through a lot of its most radical times in the 70s. One of the most fierce environmentalists of the last hundred years uh, fought a lot of battles, won a lot, lost some serious ones. Um, and it could be kind of an asshole. But uh, he famously said, I think, something to the effect of environmental victories are never won. They're just, you just hold off the bad guys because they're always going to come back. Um, you know, they're always going to want to try to put in a, a, a mine of some sort in a beautiful national park. They're always going to want to log the, the old growth forests. Those guys aren't going away. So it, it's a fight that's never truly won. However, uh, when I was at the Sierra Club, Michael Brune, who was the executive director at that time, still is, actually made a really good point, which gave me much more optimism, which was that when it comes to energy, when you shut down a coal-fired power plant and replace it with wind turbines or a solar plant or distributed solar on rooftops, that is a permanent victory because that plant's never coming back. And that's the one place where the where environmentalists are winning kind of long-term sustainable victories. Yeah, there is the, there are those um, those decisions that we can make that have the leveraged impact. Right. I do think that that's why the the video that I did on banking was so popular is because if you move your bank account. The movie is uh, the money is then always going to be going back into your local community if you're in a local right. bank or credit union. It's right. not like the, uh, I mean, on the opposite end of the spectrum, uh, bringing your own mug for coffee is one of those non-leveraged impacts. I think that it's really important to do that, but every time you do it, you have to remember that again and again right. and again right. same with a beach cleanup beach cleanup again and again and it's important that we do that work but there are those coal power plant chink in the armor mm -hmm. uh, leveraged impacts that mm -hmm. um, that really magnify it that's for sure yeah it's kind of like the difference between charity and philanthropy which is that and I just I know this because I'm working now for this magazine at Stanford when I interviewed a, a woman who's uh, kind of a philanthropic strategist, and uh, her name is Laura Ariaga Andreessen, um, and she has she she says all the time, charity is about fixing problems that are kind of momentary. Like if there's a if there's a natural disaster, you go in and you you make sure the people are clothed and fed and have housing. Um, but philanthropy looks at the underlying causes and fixes those so that the, you, you give the people schooling, you, you train them so they can become self-sufficient, you stop global warming so maybe we don't have the tragedy, whatever it is, you, you, you aim at the underlying cause. Um, 
I think that's kind of the same thing with some, some environmental movements. Yeah. And I think that a lot of it comes back to asking the right questions. Like you and I are both you know, question askers, right? And I, and I think that by asking better questions, by like where does the source start? Where does the money go? Who is really benefiting from this? Who is really losing from this? Mm -hmm. um, can ultimately get you to more intelligent strategies, whether it's um, trying to shut down a coal plant or get to the heart of right. some surfer's life. Right. And so you asked me a, a basic question about how do you get those stories out of people? Um, one really common, easy way to do it is you got to think of yourself as kind of a combatant uh, when you're talking to somebody. Like you want to challenge them, but you don't want to be a dick about it. So the, the kind of obvious and easiest way to do that is to say, to stop them and say, I'm going to play devil's advocate here for a minute. Or, you know, I've talked to people who disagree with you on this, and this is what they might say. So you're not challenging them yourself. You're sort of channeling the other channeling side. The, you're channeling the devil through you. <laughs> you're channeling the dick. Because <laughs> the devil needs an advocate. <laughs> yeah, from their mind, from, in, from their perspective, you are kind right. of the devil. But that's okay, because, because you'll find out 99 out of 100 times they're not surprised by the question. They've already asked themselves the question. You know, they, they're ready for it. Um, I mean, it gets really interesting when you ask them questions they hadn't considered. But, but, but most of the time, they're, they're ready for it, and they've got a pretty good answer, but it's not the pat answer that they're used to giving in their interviews about how wonderful everything is. Oh, you're just taking it one heat at a time, you know? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're taking it one heat at a time, but I know that you hate... Uh, you know, this guy who you surfed against. So I'm told, people tell me, I'm going to play devil's advocate here, that that guy's kind of a dick. <laughs> right. And then, oh, yeah. So, so yeah, how, do, are, how do you deal with that? There are a million ways to do it. Yeah. There's a lot of ways to do it. And you can do it and still be a gentleman and still be, and still have them like you. Yeah. But in some ways, I think they actually appreciate it because they know that the world is thinking that. And I, and I think a lot of times what you're doing as a, as a journalist is you're just asking the questions the audience wants it to be asked. That's kind of the core of it. And you just have to be aware of that in the moment. Yeah. You know, you have to kind of lose yourself as you don't want to necessarily bro down. You just want to get the best out of them. And what I found is that um, interview subjects appreciate that because that's yeah. what they want. They want yeah. someone who's going to ask them smart questions. And challenge them a little bit. So I'm going to say to you right now, Kyle, challenge me. Chal ask me. Ask me a question that's going to make me uncomfortable. Uh, what's the greatest lesson your father ever taught you? Well, I, I, I think I've already told that story. You kind of did. Yeah. Um, whose love did you crave more as a child, your mother's or your father's? You fucking asshole. I'm not going to answer that. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, Oh, my mother's for sure. Yeah. Why? Because uh, she was just kinder and uh, um, uh, uh, 
going to get all verklempt here. She, my mother was just this beautiful, generous, uh, loving person who um, just brought the best out of everybody around her and um, never was just not judgmental about anything with anybody. My brother Tony Hawk, the skateboarder, when he started kind of mingling in that crowd and he'd bring home these guys with like mohawks and you know this was in this was really early in that phase and my mother had grown up in the depression was came out of a pretty conservative life she would just bring them in and hug them and oh kevin your mohawk it's just it's it's so beautiful right now <laughs> you know um and she now uh is in her I'm going to say 10th year of Alzheimer's. She's got pretty, she's got very advanced Alzheimer's right now. She hasn't said a word in four or five years. Wow. uh, That's comprehensible. But as she, as she moved toward that phase, as she got increasingly, um, as as she lost her ability to talk, uh, her life story sort of boiled down to four or five phrases and they were um, uh, I've lived a great life I'm lucky to be healthy I have four beautiful children and I'm ready to go it was just you know it's like it was like a reduction sauce you know she her life distilled down to and and I think that Alzheimer's in some ways as horrific as it is um, can really show you the kind of core person um in its final stages because i've talked to other people whose parents had alzheimer's or grandparents had alzheimer's and things got really ugly yeah fear-based statements or fear-based angry yeah resentment resentment which is you know the to me the resentment is the source of almost all ugliness in the world and uh and my mother did had none of that she had none of that and she still She's completely lost the ability to articulate, but she, it's really a strange thing, Alzheimer's, in that she, um, she has all the affectations of her speech, but with no, without any of the, the, the verbal access. So she'll, in one moment, she'll say like, you can tell she wants to, she's telling a joke, like, and then the next moment she's like, lecturing and then the next moment she's kind of um, uh, lost and uh, but all of them are positive you know that's kind of who my mother is so very long answer to your not so easy question my mother my dad was kind of a grump (laughs) how do you um dance with uh, kind of being with someone who who can't articulate themselves anymore like how do you respond to it's really hard yeah it's really hard you you don't you you just don't spend that much time with them I feel really really guilty I'm not down she's in Southern California I'm in Northern California I don't get down there more than three or four times a year my brother lives a couple miles from her so he sees her all the time um Last time I was down there, the two of us were sitting side by side 
on, on either side of her. And uh, she was holding both of our hands. And my brother, Tony, he's, he's, a, he's a really good guy. He's very funny. And uh, he's, he's 12 years younger than me. And he says to my mom, and to, we, we talk to her, but she can't understand anything we're saying. So we actually kind of talk to each other through her. I'll, I'll tell her about what my sons are doing because this is news to him, and he'll tell me what's going on in his life if this is news to me. But at one point he stops and he says to my mom, um, Mom, I, I know what you're thinking right now. You look at me and you say before. You look at Steve and you say after. Before, after, before, after. Because I'm so much older. <laughs> wow. Some real shit right there. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but but kind of but yeah, kind of beautiful. Yeah, but really, yeah, that. but really beautiful. I mean, yeah. what uh, the the theme through this conversation has been those defining characteristics, and either noticing them in other people, n- or um, them, you know, through either process of life um, being boiled down. To, I mean, the way that you're yeah. talking about your mom, like it's really just being boiled down to your kind of view of existence, I guess, like view of what life is, view of what, what life can be. Um, yeah, so I, I don't know. I, one, I, one thing we haven't talked about was I, I had a kind of between all my, my work at the Surf Magazine and my work at Sierra Magazine, I, I had the really incredible good fortune to work on a television show for HBO called John from Cincinnati with this, um, Kem Nunn, the surf novelist, brought me into it because I got to know him a little bit when I was working at Surfer. And um, I got to work with this guy named David Milch, who a lot of people regard as one of the best writers in the history of Hollywood. He created NYPD Blue. He was the number one writer before that on Hill Street Blues. And then he created this show called Deadwood, which arguably one of the four or five best shows in the history of television um and our show was right after deadwood and he was uh he was an incredible incredibly generous soul crazy um had a lot of pathologies had been a junkie for a lot a lot of time recovering alcoholic um and but also just a a firm believer that uh, that all of the worst things in life can be redeemed through good art. Um, and his primary philosophy on the show we worked on was that no matter how fallen anyone is, they can find redemption through, you never know how, but eventually find redemption, even the most fallen among us and he had this philosophy that he would talk about all the time which was that the uh, the future no the, the past is constantly in the process of being redefined by the future which means that things that are that seem really terrible and tragic in the moment in the surf world you could take Jay Moriarty's death as one of the great tragedies can be turned into um, if looked upon the right way these moments of 
kind of triumph and beauty and transcendence, his paddle out, right? When how many people paddled out here, right? A block from here. I've seen the aerial photographs. That's a goosebump moment, you know, which never, which wouldn't have happened if he hadn't died. Um, so, uh, you know, you can look at something like Jay's death as a pure tragedy, or you can look upon it as sort of this uplifting moment for the surf world. It's both. Yeah, there's duality in everything. Right. Um, but it's it, the, so. So the, to me, the best stories pull that off, where you acknowledge the darkness of something, but you also help the reader, the viewer, the audience realize that there's this kind of redemption on the other side of it because that's sort of what life is at its best thanks so much for listening my friends if you have one or two minutes and like this podcast please give it a rating on iTunes or Stitcher it really helps me out And if you want to get in touch with me on Facebook or Instagram, write me some hate mail, love mail, feedback, recommendations for new guests, give me a jingle and I will get back to you. All right. Have a great day.